I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, May 2nd, 2023. Coming up, part one of our graduation edition, where we talk to PhD students about their thesis work, giving us a view of the cutting edge of new research and pulling back the curtain on that mysterious thing called grad school. Yes, indeed. It is once again graduation season. High schools and colleges are celebrating the achievements and transitions of students who have spent years in study. So today's edition of How on Earth is part one of our annual graduation special. Our guests are three graduate students who are getting their PhDs this year, and they have joined us to talk about their thesis research and their grad school experiences They are Rob Streeter, Amanda Hampton, and Jacob Kravitz, graduating from the University of Colorado in Boulder. Welcome to the show, the three of you. Let me start with Rob Streeter from the Department of Electrical Engineering. Your thesis title I have as High Resolution Deep Tissue Microwave Thermometry. Is that right? That's right, Joel. All right. Good. At least I I passed that part of the test. (laughs) You sure did. What is your thesis about? That's a great question. And in a word, it's a thermometer. And so everything in the universe above absolute zero, everything that has a temperature, emits electromagnetic radiation across the spectrum at all frequencies. And what's really cool is the power contained in those emissions is proportional to the temperature of the object that's emitting them. So the hotter the object, the more power in the emissions. So we can receive that power. We can measure it with a really sensitive piece of electrical hardware. From that, we can determine the temperature of what we're looking at. This is really simple when you think of something like, for example, a cup of water. We can put hot tea on the table and we all know that it cools down. We can measure that temperature. In fact, we did as an early experiment. We showed that this thing actually works. But think about something maybe a little bit more complicated. Let's think about brain temperature. Okay, that definitely is more complicated. (laughs) And turns out it's actually really important for lots of stuff. You know, you can imagine simple fever monitoring that we're all doing with a thermometer under the tongue or in your ear or even against your forehead. But... Brain temperature is tracked during, for example, emergency cardiac repair surgeries. Sometimes Mm. the surgeon only has 30 minutes to complete a very high risk, very important procedure, and they cool the body down to do that. And they have to monitor brain temperature when they do that. And what they do now is they actually put a temperature sensor up your nose. And that actually takes a while to stabilize at a temperature because believe it or not, you breathe. Mm. And that air temperature affects the temperature that you're getting. And so you're not really measuring true brain temperature. But if we go back to this idea that everything emits radiation and we can determine the physical temperature from that, 
Think about the layers of tissues between your forehead and the brain. You've got like skin, fat, mm -hmm. muscle, bone, and then your brain kind of floating around in, in some brain goop in there. <laughs> That's the technical term. Exactly. No, it's, it's cerebrospinal fluid, but we'll call it brain goop. It's basically salt water. All those things are emitting radiation. And so if we know some properties about all those things, we can actually build a model that allows us to back out from that single measurement from that radiometer, allows us to back out the contributions from each individual layer and thus each layer's physical temperature. And so totally non-invasively, totally passively, just by listening, if you will, to what your body is naturally emitting, we can determine the temperature of a buried tissue layer. Hmm. Do you need an absolute temperature or do you just need to track some relative changes? That's a superb question. And it depends on what you're trying to do. A lot of the times, this relative temperature, we started in a healthy place and we're going to change it somehow and we can see how much it changed. That's all you need. And that's actually much, much easier to get than an absolute temperature. Most thermometers these days, you know, they may tell you, they may report the temperature to 0.1 degrees, but really there's about half a degree Precision versus accuracy. Exactly. That, that it's off a little bit. Ours is true to temperature to about uh, a half a degree um, Celsius. Interesting. And so that's, that's pretty much the industry standard right now. Yeah, I know that if I do the forehead one versus the ear one versus under the tongue, it's like, oh, I have a fever. Oh, I'm 97. So, you know, I guess yeah, it's, exactly. you just want to know what your thermometer reads out what its bias might be and to accommodate for that. Yeah, exactly. And interestingly enough, the, the forehead sensors we've all had pressed up against our foreheads for the past three years are actually just measuring your skin temperature. Yeah. So if you just worked out or if it was really cold outside or really hot outside, that temperature is biased based on, on the environment. So when it's really important, there are better ways to do it. Exactly. So what took you into this thesis? Did you have a fever one day and go, ooh, <laughs> I want to know how to better measure my temperature? It, I might have had a fever when I decided to go to grad school, but I probably <laughs> didn't think of this project when I did. Um, no, I've actually, I've actually always loved the interplay between biology and medicine and electrical engineering. I think interdisciplinary science is where the future of science is going. This has always been a great way to help people, a great way to see electrical engineering, a highly technical, highly specialized field that I can directly envision how I'm helping the general public. And I think that's really cool. Did you have any biology or medical background or interest that drove you there? Or did um, it I've just... got a little bit of emergency ex response experience uh, as a, a volunteer firefighter and as a, a part of an ambulance crew. But I have no, you know, beyond a wilderness first aid class, I have no formal medical training or, or uh, education. Where do you see your thesis leading to? Hopefully uh, five more PhDs over the next few years. When I started, I was <laughs> the only one. Not for you personally. Not for me. Oh, no, I think I'm done for a little bit. Um, but when I started, I was the only one in the group. And now there's actually five more younger PhD students that are, you know, investigating different aspects of the project and just the really fundamental science that needs to go into evolving this cool. this idea. So really on the edge of the field there. Yeah. That's what I always find interesting about talking to recent grad students is very often the work they do really is new work, cutting edge, something that a professor hasn't had time to think about and said, can you do this? And so it really is kind of peering into what might be the next big thing. Absolutely, yeah. 
All right. Well, thank you very much, Rob. Let me move to my next guest, Amanda Hampton from the Applied Math Department. Her thesis title is, I know you're laughing, but, but I think I can do it, on the three-dimensional quadratic diffeomorphism, anti-integrability, nice. thank you, <laughs> attractors, and chaos. Okay, so I, I, I didn't quite pass the thesis title test here, but Amanda, can you perhaps say it better and explain what it is? <laughs> no, no stress, no stress. So... Um, I'm going to actually step away from the title first and just give a little bit of background. Um, so I would consider myself um, a dynamicist, so I study dynamical systems. A dynamical system is a collection of interacting objects that evolve over time. So you can think of gases in the atmosphere, um, people just you know walking around in the neighborhood, cells in your body. It's a pretty broad, broad idea. So in regards to dynamical systems, there are two types of behaviors. There's regular behavior and chaotic behavior. So we can think of some dial of dynamical systems, regular on one side, chaotic on the other. And they're both very intuitive as to what they mean. Regular behavior, you can think of planets, um, bodies in space, one planet going around the sun. You can think of a pendulum going back and forth. Regular behavior. On the other side, we have chaotic behavior. And the example I always like to use is snakes riding unicorns, uh, <laughs> going through space, being chased by spaceships. So, uh, was that actually part of your thesis? Yes, it was. Okay. <laughs> I had a cartoon. <laughs> so there's, there's two sides. In the real world, there is not completely regular behavior, nor is there completely chaotic behavior. Dynamical systems in the real world are somewhere in the middle. And what I do is I took the, I'm going to go back to the thesis title, the three-dimensional quadratic diffeomorphism. That is just a particular type of dynamical system. That's just the one that I happen to work with. And what I've done is I've filled out the dial of what this particular system does. So I, I figured out a way to understand the chaotic side. I use something called anti-integrability to connect that chaotic side to the regular side, which we kind of play around with a little bit, and I call it the attracting side instead of my particular problem. So yeah, I, I, I fill out the dial, so to speak, mm -hmm. with this particular dynamical system. Um, and this dynamical system is important because um, it's a three-dimensional quadratic, and there's reasons why that in itself is important, but it, it can be used as an idealized model for the movement of incompressible fluids, or like plasma physics. So for fusion devices is where this is kind of headed mm -hmm. in the future. You mentioned planetary orbits is something that's a regular example. However, as you said, <laughs> everything in the real world really is on the dial because there are a lot of planetary dynamicists out there who deal with chaotic systems mm -hmm. because an orbit that may look regular for millions and millions and hundreds of millions of years mm -hmm. can suddenly go chaotic. Mm -hmm. And that could be a very specific source of the structure of our current solar system. Mm -hmm. So this really does span everything probably from the small realm to the universal realm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what I think is uh, pretty cool about my part, my project specifically, is the, the anti-integrability portion. Um, AI. AI. I call it AI. <laughs> it makes me sound super, super cool. I'm hoping to get some job interviews with that. Um, <laughs> but historically speaking, when, when we study dynamical systems, we usually start on the quote-unquote regular side, and we turn this dial up. Anti-integrability is the opposite way, where we start with some chaotic system and we turn the dial down. I mean, this is 
this methodology in of itself is still, I think it's still kind of in the proof of concept stage. So slight flex here. If you were to Google anti-integrability, my name is one of the first ones that pops up. Not so, AI, but anti-integrability. Anti-integrability, yes. Um, and, and that's really just to kind of showcase that this is super, super new. Mm-hmm. But it's, I think it's, it's a pretty cool because one of the motivators behind looking at this particular methodology is that the other way is really, really hard <laughs> and people don't like to do it. Right. Um, and I think that's something that scientists and mathematicians don't really talk about too much is that sometimes things are really hard and we want to try something else. With that in mind, where do you see this leading? Is there real world application or is it the methodology that's particular interest or the results or both? Um, I think the the methodology right now, like I said, it's still in kind of the proof of concept stage just to see if it kind of works in different contexts. Um, I think that's kind of the first step and we need to build it up a little bit more. But in the grand scheme of it, I mean, that's that's how math works. Math is kind of this the, the foundational work that things, everything is built on. That's one reason why I decided to go the math direction is because you can do so much with it afterwards. Um, there are quite probably <laughs> like hundreds of different directions you can go with this particular research. I'm interested in the application side and kind of seeing if we can like put data to it and, and right. see how that works as well. Um, but that's probably another PhD in of itself. Again, not yours. <laughs> and not mine. <laughs> so, so when you were eight years old, did you think, hmm, I want to be a chaotic dynamicist and work on anti-integrability? Oh, heck no. <laughs> um, I probably got interested in grad school when I was an undergrad. And ironically enough, I hated undergrad. And so I was trying to fast track in the way that I was doing that was through an internship. That was, it was a research internship when I was mm. doing stuff in computational neuroscience. And mm. I remember doing it and I was like, ah, I think I could do this whole research thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I went to grad school. And interestingly enough, I actually took some time off while in grad school. I took a leave of absence about halfway through because um, it was not what I wanted. Uh, but I came back, and I'm quite glad I did. Um, I think I got pretty lucky in regards to the program that I'm in, my advisor, uh, the project that I'm on. Um, one one reason that I also kind of dove into the chaos side of things mm-hmm. is because the pictures are really cool. Right. <laughs> All the attractors. And... Very visually motivated. Yeah. So. You talking about taking time off reminds me, Rob, you had, I would say, a gap year, but it was a gap several years. I actually finished a master's in 2013, unrelated to what I would eventually get my PhD in, um, and then entered industry for six years. I worked as a research engineer for the Air Force. I worked for a small tech company in rural Wyoming, which is where I'm from. And then I actually had the the opportunity to deploy for 12 and a half months as a science support engineer to Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station in Antarctica. Um, where T- I took you all over. Yeah, yeah, I'm grateful for it. It's been a really nice ride so far. Yeah, sometimes, depending on your particular path, it's important to maybe get some of that middle life experience before you decide if it's grad school really what I want to do, you know. So yeah, no, it's interesting just to hear the different paths. Let me move on now to my third guest here in the studio. This is Jacob Kravitz from the Civil, Environmental, and Architectural Engineering Department, degree in civil engineering. And his thesis title is Balancing Cost, Water, Emissions, and Reliability in Power System Operations. 
Now I'm very proud of myself. I understood yeah, all those well, words. I have, I, have, I, have, I have a stutter, so I made it you know, easy, easy to say. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that is the title. And so my research looks at the intersection between electrical grids and river systems. Now, these systems interact in a few ways, but the way that I, the, the point of interaction that I look at is how power plants use water to provide cooling so that they can produce electricity. And so a really nice local example is the, the Valmont power plant. Just out east Boulder here. Exactly. And the next time you're passing by it, you may see these large cooling ponds surrounding it. Those are not just for aesthetic reasons. Those actually have a, a functional purpose. This coupling of energy systems and, and river systems becomes really important during drought and heat wave events because these are these external stressors that impact both systems. And if you're not careful, you can have the problems in your river system impact your electrical grid hmm. and you can have the problems in your electrical grid impact your river system and they can sort of compound and spiral out of control, like maybe a chaotic system to build <laughs> off our last, last uh, student here. And so the fundamental contribution of my research is, is to answer the question of how can we operate the grid such that we are considering this water use and preventing some of these problems from happening in the first place. And how we did that is by actually assigning a monetary value to these different types of, of water uses. So you can actually mm -hmm. offer this as another incentive for the grid, right? So instead of just minimizing economic costs, you could also minimize your water costs. Right. But it's really difficult to pick a value for water because if you pick a value that's that's too low, well, then nothing's going to change. But if you pick a value that's too high, you can actually increase emissions. You can actually make your system less reliable, which means like mm. you know blackouts. Right. And you could also increase your uh, operational costs. And so the challenge of my my research and the challenge of this last you know four four plus years has been how do you balance cost, water use emissions and reliability, right? These are all four things that are very important, but it's, it, they, they sort of compete with one another. And trying the, to find an optimization among all of these. Exactly, exactly. And, and the, the spoiler alert, you know, is that, you know, after four years, we, we show that it is possible, right? It is possible to make some of these operational schemes that do compromise among all four of these, these quantities. And they are resilient to, you know, throwing droughts and heat waves and outages and all these other stressors. Um, we, we've shown that these policies do, in fact, work. This really is an intersection between power systems, climate, a, a lot of different things. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The 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 term, the, like academic this. term, like systems and and systems and engineering. So yeah. Seeing how these different systems impact one another and communicate with one another. I was surprised back when I found out that. The energy sector is one of the biggest users for water. I mean, agriculture certainly as well, but it's a significant factor. Yes, yeah. There, there's different types of water use. We really want to get into it. So they, they are a big withdrawer of water, which means that they, they use the water and then they return it to the system. They don't consume a lot of water. Consumed water is water that, that you quote unquote lose, right? So they, they do consume a little bit of water in evaporation, um, but they are definitely a, a large withdrawer of, 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 of water. Interesting. Do you see this as leading to, is it something that publish your results, everyone reads your thesis, and then works on the control systems for their power plants? Exactly. So there's, there's a few different, there's a few different uh, takeaways. So there definitely are, is an academic audience. But I think that where I get really excited is the, the sort of 
the impacts to system planners. So people who actually are, are operating these systems and need to make sure that their systems are resilient to droughts and, and heat waves. And along the way, we've shown that you know, it's not just you can change your operations. We actually can sort of predict how your system is going to fail. So you know in advance, okay, this, this generator is, is going to be uh, a, a problem. Or you, we can even get down to the line level. We can say like this transmission line is going to be congested during these, these uh, st stressing events. Interesting. So you have not yet defended your thesis. Yes, I have, I have not yet. I guess you cannot, you cannot call me a, a, a doctor I, I won't call you. <laughs> I won't call you Dr. Kravitz yet. But I guess I can uh, talk to Dr. Streeter and Dr. Hampton, perhaps. I don't know. If they haven't conf you haven't gone through the ceremony yet, but we're the paperwork is in. You got the paperwork. That's right. That's you learned the handshake <laughs> and everything. It's approved. Like the boxes that. are checked. Legally, I yep. can call myself that. <laughs> so if there aren't any scars here that I'm bothering, do you want to give Jacob any experience of what your uh, thesis defense was like, or words of wisdom? Um, sure. So um, my defense itself was, was a lot earlier than I was expecting, so that was very stressful. Um, <laughs> but the experience itself, I think, was honestly quite phenomenal. Um, leading up to it, I remember being super, super nervous, lots of anxiety and stress. But I remember the day of, I woke up and I was like, yep, we all know what's going to happen. We all know the outcome. I invited so many people. There must, I think there was like 20 to 30 people in the room and also 20 or 30 people online. Um, it was a big moment for me for a lot of different reasons. Um, More anti-integrability <laughs> experts out there now. <laughs> no, there's nobody. <laughs> no, lots of friends. Um, but, I mean, I cracked jokes the entire time. My committee was great. Um, I got lots of great feedback. I only got positive feedback. Um, so I, I, had a, I had a really good experience. In, in theory, if you have a good advisor, they won't let you defend <laughs> until you're ready. And the thing to know is... You are the expert in the room at that point. Mm. You know, they'll still ask questions. Though. Spoken like someone who has been through the process. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> what about you, Rob? You know, my my experience, I think, really mirrored Amanda's, and it's it, it was more of a a meeting of let's talk about what you've done and and where you think it's going, and not entirely unlike what we're doing right now. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you kind of get up there and and you've done the work, just like you've said, you are the expert in the room. And you're just telling people about what you've done. Right. And you're sort of, it's less welcoming criticism, although you may get that. It's more opening the door for discussion, mm -hmm. for where does this go? What's next? How can we take this fundamental work that you've done and put it forth into the world in a way that matters? That's more what the conversation ended up being geared around. Excellent. So, Jacob, do you feel ready? Oh, of course. I'm ready. <laughs> I made little little uh, invitations for my defense, and I, I didn't call it, you know, come to Amanda's defense. I said, come to Amanda's victory lap. Oh. <laughs> so. Coming to her. Otherwise, it's coming to your defense. <laughs> <laughs> so, just to show that perhaps, maybe, for some people, grad school isn't just writing a thesis and just the books. These are humans. And they do other things. So, Amanda, I believe you're an ultra runner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's always good to hear what interests people have outside of their science and engineering. You want to just? Yeah, sure. I'll dive really quick. Um, so I, I, I think I might have mentioned that I took time off while in grad school, and when I did, I actually moved to New Zealand. So I lived there for a few mm -hmm. years, and while I was down there, got super into backpacking and running. Um, 
and yeah, I became an ultra runner. But I love I love running outside in the woods. Um, <laughs> Welcome <I> also, to Boulder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Quality place to be for that. Um, and I also before. I came to grad school. I was a pseudo professional drummer. I did something called drum corps in WGI. Um, ah, so when I came here, I started teaching a little bit with that as well. So music, athletics, and education. Good combo, yeah. Jacob. Well, I, I last year I moved to Denver from Boulder, which is maybe sacrilegious <laughs> to say on, on Boulder Public Radio. Better better view back of the <laughs> exactly. Uh, so I feel like I'm really living that that Denver Denver life now. So I, I follow a lot of the the Denver sports now. I, I also play drums. Uh, so I, I play. And so do I, Rob. Well, do you play drums? I did for eight oh, years. Okay. Oh, there we go. Oh my God. All right. Well, we've got a studio here. We'll call you back sometime. Unbelievable. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So uh, yeah, just I've been playing playing a, a lot more. Grad school was actually a little bit of a hiatus for my hobbies. Mm. I kind of had to put some stuff on the back burner. So now. I'm, I'm coming out of it. I'm like getting back into it, starting to meet 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 more uh, fellow mu- musicians and and play out more. And yeah, it's it's very 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 exciting time for me. So Rob, take it home then. What do you like yeah. to do? Um, so I don't want to copy Amanda, but I also really love to run. <laughs> and Boulder, as we all know, is a great place to do it. But I love just spending time outside. Um, we had uh, my partner and I had an awesome backcountry ski day just a couple of weekends ago. Uh, we love to do that. Um, anything, anything athletic, anything outside. Just, I feel like when people are are at their peak physically, they're at their peak mentally. All right, that's a great way to end this interview. I want to thank all three of you very much for getting up in the morning after you've <laughs> ah, thank you for finished your thesis and coming here. So thank, thank you very you. much. Thank, yeah, you. thank you, thank Joel. You. Our guests were Rob Streeter, Amanda Hampton, and Jacob Kravitz, graduate students who just completed their PhDs at the University of Colorado Boulder. Graduation at CU will be Thursday, May 11th at 8.30 a.m. at Folsom Field on the CU Boulder campus. Join us every Tuesday morning for How on Earth, and in particular on May 30th for part two of this graduation special when we talk to more graduating PhDs about their work. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show is produced and engineered by yours truly, Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show... I'm Joel Parker.